do we believe about the Bible? We talked about some key things about the Bible. We believed it had authority because God spoke it. We talked about the fact that since God spoke it, it's inspired. We looked at 2 Timothy 3 about that. Because God spoke it and God cannot lie, we talked that it, about it was how it was an errant. There was no errors and it was completely truthful. We talked about how it was sufficient for everything that we need to know about how we're to live. We also saw that it was clear that you don't have to have a seminary degree to understand the Bible. That anyone who really seeks for the help of the Holy Spirit to understand the Scriptures can understand the Scriptures. So we looked at some of those things. And I tried to tie it together with a definition from Vody Bauckham of why we believe the Bible. Remember we said we believe the Bible because it's a reliable collection of historic documents written down by eyewitnesses in a lifetime of other eyewitnesses. And of course, just supernatural events that are fulfillment of specific prophecies. And it claims its writings are of a divine and not human origin. Again, that's in your handout from last week. But that kind of pulled it all together that of what the Scripture claims for itself and why we have very, very good reason to trust it. It's not just a blind faith. But there's very compelling reasons of why we believe the Bible. We talked about translation differences last week and the difference in what we call formal equivalent or word-for-word translations and dynamic equivalent or thought-for-thought type translations and why there are those differences and why they read differently. And then we ended last week of why do we bother trying to interpret to understand the Bible. We ended with we do that because we're trying to worship God. And we talked about from the Westminster Catechism, question one, and we answered that, you know, what is the chief end of man? It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And we can't do that apart from knowing God as he's revealed in the scriptures. And so that's where we were last week. Because so that comes to week two. And tonight we're going to try to answer two questions that we see on the front of your handout there. As we seek to understand the Bible, what should we not do and what should we do? Now, before we get into those specific questions, I want to give us some big picture reminders of really what's at stake in the way we approach Scripture. First, look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 7. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And what I want you to see in this is do not miss the connection between our calling to worship God and the role of Scripture in doing that. If you look at these first two verses, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, but remember who God is, and we're supposed to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And how can we do that, friends? We can't do that apart from knowing God as He's revealed Himself to us in the pages of Scripture. So, hence, verse 6, these words that I command you, these words of Scripture shall be on your heart, and we shall teach them diligently. But we should also talk about them. This is the idea of understanding, interpreting. We should talk about them. And so to know God, we have to know his word. But also a big picture. Look at Psalm 1 here, verses 1 through 3 of Psalm 1. Familiar text to many of us. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does... He prospers. Friends, what's at stake here is our ability to be who God wants us to be. If we want to be the tree planted by streams of living water, if we want to be that tree that yields its fruit in season, we cannot do that apart from, verse 2, delighting in the law of the Lord. And so just as we, as we go through this, again, I just want to remind us, big picture, this is not just some academic exercise. This is not just some theology class that we're doing. This is all about our ability to know God, to love God, to worship God all this and to experience the life God has for us is all rooted in us knowing the God who's revealed himself to us in the pages of Scripture. So just big picture, I don't want us to lose that as we go through some of the more technicalities, if you will, of how we understand Scripture. So turn the page. We're going to start tonight with the negative question. What should we not do when we seek to understand 
the Bible. Well, why are we starting here? Well, my goal is I don't want us to have, this is not about having a critical spirit. This is not us trying to be condemning to people who've done these. I've done a lot of these things in the past that I'm going to talk about that I think we shouldn't do. It's our human tendency can draw us to these things. So we're not throwing stones, but we're simply trying to challenge ourselves because what's listed here is so easy to default to. And we need to move beyond a lot of these things. And I'll also start here because it'll help frame the discussion of what we are supposed to do as we approach the scripture. Now, again, before we get into these, these things, let me remind us from last week, we all interpret the Bible. Everyone does. We all interpret it. We all do theology. The question is, are we rightly handling it? So it's not a question of, should I interpret the Bible? We all do. Every time we say, well, God is love or don't judge or whatever other comments you hear thrown around, that's an interpretation. That's doing theology. The question is, are we doing it right? And so let me give us four ways that I would suggest that we do not do interpreting the Bible. Four ways that we should not approach how we understand the Bible. These are very popular in the culture, very popular in churches, very popular, easy for our lives to go this way. So number one of what we should not do, I'm calling it the self-centered approach. So the self-centered approach to understanding the Bible. Well, it takes two forms. The first form that we need to avoid is only reading or only teaching the passage in the Bible that we like. And most of us wouldn't say we're going to do this. But, I mean, the reality is a lot of times we are drawn to certain things. So, you know, you, you will occasionally hear the person who's like, well, I just don't like the God I see in the Old Testament, so I'm just going to read about Jesus. Well, that's this approach. This is like I've chosen which part of the Bible I like, and I'm going to hone in on just that part. Or I've heard it other ways. So, you know, the book of Revelation is way too confusing for me. I just I, I don't read that. I'll leave that for someone else. You know, that, that, that's the approach of, well, I don't like it. It doesn't make me feel comfortable. I don't want to take the time to get it. So I'm just not going to go there. That's what I call the self-centered approach to the Bible. Well, this can happen in our devotions. This can happen in our teaching and our preaching as well. There's a danger as pastors are drawn to, to preach on and teach on just what they like. And so when the pastor search committee was interviewing me, one of the questions someone asked was, well, what are your soapbox issues you're going to be drawn to getting on a lot? And I thought that's a good question on this because we're drawn to certain things and each person is going to be a little bit different about that. Let me give you a real life example. There's a mega church pastor in the United States and he was, he was being interviewed one time on TV and it caught my attention. The interviewer asked this, this, this large influential pastor if what he thought about using the term sinner because you know, the Bible talks about people being sinners. And what he thought about using that, because the, the, the host of the show basically said, I don't hear you say this much. Here's the exact quote from what this, this pastor said on national TV. He said about using the term sinner. I don't. I don't use it. I never thought about it, but I probably don't. Most people already know what they're doing wrong. When I get into church, I want to tell them you can change. There can be a difference in your life. So I don't go down that road. So it's not just devotions. You have pastors who say, you know, I'm just, I'm not going there. I'm not going to talk about sin. I'm not talk about sinners. You know, I just, I don't like that. That makes me uncomfortable. I'm not going there. That's the self-centered approach that we should not do with it. What's the problem with this? Why should we not do that? Well, there's a scripture for you, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Some of scripture is breathed out by God. We talked about this last week. What is it? All of Scripture is breathed out by God. That means all of it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So how much of Scripture is breathed out? All of it. Therefore, it's dangerous, friends, if we only go to the parts of it that we like. God gave it all for a reason, and we need it all in our life. You know, why do we need it? Verse 17, to be equipped, to be complete, to be equipped for every good work. And so, friends... If we only read the parts of the Bible we like, 
realize what the, the implication is. Not only are we not seeing all God has for us, but we are not able to be complete and equipped for every good work because we're missing part of God's revelation to us of what we need. That's why at Gateway, our primary form of teaching is verse by verse through the Bible. Because there are pastors that, that I would not just give them to me. I really want to preach that one today. But if we go verse by verse through books of the Bible, it's going to make me have to deal with passages I don't want to deal with and make you have to hear passages that you don't want to deal with either, right? It helps us see the whole counsel of the Word of God. That's why we do this in a lot of our Bible study. That, that's why I'm so encouraged that the ladies this, this, this spring, this winter, have an opportunity to go through the book of Leviticus in a ladies' Bible study. That, that's encouraging. I mean, how many people get up in the mornings and are like, I want to do Leviticus this year. You know, that's not where we go to. We go to the Psalms. We may go to the Gospels. But to realize that all of it is God's word for us, and so we look at all of it. That's why we encourage Bible reading plans like we did this year. Because, again, most of us aren't going to be like, what do I want to read in the Bible today? I'm going to go to the minor prophets. You know, I've been missing the minor prophets. You know, most of us aren't drawn to that. You know, if I open the Bible and I go back, I'll go read Philippians for the millionth time. I'm not going to go back and, and read Habakkuk or Zechariah. You know, we're, we're prone to do certain things, but we need the totality of the Word of God. But there's a second form that this self-centered approach to Scripture can take. And I call this asking problematic questions. And so, again, I've done these before, but, but I think the word is stretching us beyond these. And this is how these are well-meaning questions. Again, these are people who ask these questions small groups and do not mean ill will by these. But it's questions like, what does this mean to you? Well, when I read the text, it means this to me, but what does it mean to you? What do you like about this text? What do you not like about this text? It's really popular in, in discussion-based Bible studies all across our community and across the country and across the world for that matter. Well, when you ask questions like this, you're assuming that there's many possible meanings to a text. What does it mean to you? Well, it means this to me, but what does it mean to you? It assumes there's many possible meanings of the text. Well, friends, there's a problem with this. And what is the problem with this approach? Well, there's two. I didn't give you like two blanks down there on your handout. But there's, if you want to jot these down, there's two problems. Number one, it simply doesn't matter what it means to you and what you feel about it. I mean, just to be kind of blunt honest, it really doesn't matter if you like it or not. It doesn't matter what it means to you. We are not the main character of the Bible. God is. And so it, what matters is what God likes and doesn't like, not what I like and don't like. It doesn't matter if I like hell. It's real. It doesn't matter if the concept of election makes my American sensibilities uncomfortable. It's in the Bible. It doesn't matter if I look at that text and go, well, I don't like that form of holiness. God requires it. It doesn't matter if we like it or not. What matters is, does God like it or not? But the second problem is, beyond it just doesn't matter. Friends, the meaning is not determined by the reader. And that's the, the, the fundamental assumption and problem in a lot of these approaches. When they say, what does it mean to you? 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 That's assuming that the meaning of a text is in the reader's response. And again, that's gotten really popular some, with some translations that are being based on, on accuracy being how you respond to a text. But realize that the whole idea of meaning being rooted not in the text or the author's intent, but being rooted in the reader was really unheard of until about the Vietnam War era. And this approach to the Bible, what it means to you, got popularized during the Vietnam War era. If you think culturally what's happening, it's an era where there was such suspicion of authority. And so in, this, in that era, when there was such suspicion of authority, the thought of, well, the text doesn't have a meaning, but rather I can decide what it means to me, and I can decide what it means to me, and around we go in the group, it came out of that era. So just realize where that approach really came out of and what was happening. It was really a rebellion against Authority, And we're going to talk more about what the answer is to that in a few minutes. But for now, suffice it to say, the text, not the reader, determines the meaning. 
Therefore, there are not multiple meanings of a text. Now, there may be multiple applications of a text. That's a whole different world of here's what the text means. Now, in my situation, I need to apply it here, and here's how you apply it. But there is a meaning to the text, and we'll talk more about that in a few minutes. That's what I call the self-centered approach to Scripture that we need to avoid at all costs. second approach we need to avoid is what I'm calling the pragmatic approach. Now, the pragmatic approach is similar to a self-centered approach, but this is where we use the Bible merely as a self-help book to fix problems with my life. Well, I want to be careful here because it's always good to open the Scriptures. It is always good to go to the Bible to seek answers. That's, that's, that's not a bad thing to do. But what this, this approach does is it doesn't look to the Bible for big picture issues. It, the only time the Bible gets opened is, oh my goodness, I've got a problem. Okay, where's my concordance? Where's the verse to fix this problem? And it sees it out of our kind of American culture of self-help that's so popular. I mean, one of the, the, the biggest sections typically at Christian bookstores that sells the best is a self-help section. Because we've relegated the Bible to being kind of a problem-solving book that we go to in that. And we flip through, find the verse, solve the problem, and then forget everything else God has to say. But it also is seen in a different way. So it's seen that way. The second way this, this, this kind of pragmatic approach is seen is in the way we, I call it we moralize stories. Now, the best way to express morals, good things, right? Moralizing stories where we try to find good things from it. So let, let me give you an example of this. See if you've ever heard this taught this way. I've heard it on the radio. I've heard preachers say it before. We go to a story of like David and Goliath, familiar Old Testament story. And we read the story, and then the, the lesson goes to what giants do you need to have faith to slay in your life right now? Well, again, people are well-meaning by that. But, friends, that's not what the text is about. That's a pragmatic approach to the text. That text has nothing to do with slaying the giant of school in your life right now. That text has nothing to do with slaying the giant of anger in your heart. That text is all about the glory of God was being defamed. And, in, and God gave a young boy who in the world's eyes would be weak strength to stand up for the honor and glory of God, for God's fame. That has nothing to do with us and how I'm going to conquer the giants in my life. That is a moralizing of the text as we turn the text into something that's about God's glory, but we reduce it to something about me and how I can apply it to my problems. And so it happens in lots of different ways. In fact, there was a children's Bible some years ago, and in it they had a story of Joseph and the coat of many colors. Well, you know, big picture what God's doing in redemptive history is coming through all this. Here was the question that ended the, that children's Bible in this story. Has anyone ever given you something like a coat or a sweater? How did it make you feel to put on your new clothes? And we kind of laugh at that, but we often approach Scripture that way. We're looking at Scripture and we're saying, okay, how does this affect my contemporary life now? And we're looking at it and moralizing it and reducing the greatness of God's glory in these stories and these redemptive threads throughout it into something about me as trivial as what sweater I wear or what giant I need to conquer in my life. What is the problem with that approach? The problem is it makes us the focus and not God. Friends, the focus of Scripture is God, not me, and not you. And the problem with this approach is it puts us at the center, not God. It reveals our pride, our idolatry of ourselves, and it misses the redemptive story of the Bible. I, I want to read you a quote because I can't do better than this one. Any of you have ever read this book, The Explicit Gospel, Matt Chandler? Okay. It's, it's a great book that, that I've read with, with college students in the past, with adults in the past. I mean, it's, it's just a great book because it takes fresh eyes on the gospel story that lots of us have heard from childhood. So I just want to read you a little bit um, of what he says out of this, because I, I, we can't do better than what Matt Chandler says. This. Listen to this. He says, there are essentially two ways to view scripture. One way is to view it primarily as a guidebook for daily living. 
we have questions. Surely the Bible is a reliable reference book. So we ask, should we drink alcohol? Well, let's find that verse in the Bible. We ask, should I go see this movie or not? So we look up some text about not eating meat sacrificed to idols, and we end up slightly more confused, but feeling religious at least. Suddenly we've turned the Bible into our magic eight ball. Of course, we don't call it that. We call it things like our roadmap to life. Now, does the Bible contain a wealth of wisdom for practical daily living? Yes, absolutely. Is it going to specifically answer every question you've got? No, not by a long shot. And on top of that, answering our practical questions is not the point of the Bible. Maybe that makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up. Maybe you should shave your neck then. Or if you're married, maybe you could ask yourself what the Bible told you to marry your spouse. When you decided what job to take or school to attend, did you just find the verse, take that job or go to that school in the Bible? He says, if I'm trying to figure out what I should do or where I should go, I can find principles about wisdom and guidance and worship in the scriptures, but I can't find Mary Lauren, take the position of the village and go buy a minivan in the scriptures. Here's my point. What if the Bible is not about us at all? What if we are not the story of God's revelation? The Bible definitely issues commands for us to obey and makes demands for our submission. But in the end, reading the Bible as a daily manual for my life is a deficient way of the two basic ways available to us. We can read the Bible as a reference book about us, or we can see that the Bible is a book about God. To paraphrase Herbert Lockyer, the Bible is for us, but it's not about us. From beginning to end, the scriptures reveal that the foremost desire of God's heart is not our salvation, but rather the glory of his own name. God's glory is what drives the universe. And it's why everything exists. The world is not present, spinning and sailing in the universe so that you and I might be saved or lost, but so that God might be glorified in his infinite perfections. Friends, the dangers of us doing a pragmatic approach to Scripture and taking great stories about God's glory and saying, what giant going to slay or how do you feel when this happens to you, is we've reduced the story of God's glory, which the Bible is a story about me. So that's the pragmatic approach. And there is a quote from that book at the bottom of number two there for you if you want to read a little bit of it for yourself. Now, number three, turn the page. Another approach that we do not take, I'm calling this the emotional approach. So we've seen the self-centered approach of what I like or don't like. We've seen the pragmatic approach of moralizing things or just saying, what does this mean to me? But number three, the emotional approach, is deciding what to believe and or what to obey based on what feels right to me. Again, this, this is very popular. This is the, well, I know God's word says don't do this, but surely God understands the situation. I, I just feel like God understands and he's given me an exception. Most people don't, are not brave enough to say this. But some public figures have. In the late 90s, there was a very public Christian figure who had a very public divorce. And there was an interview done, and this lady said, here's the exact quote related to her marriage. And and just side note, there are biblical grounds for divorce, and there's non-biblical grounds for divorce. And there's no evidence that I found that hers was a biblically based one. But here's what she said. I just believe and trust that I've been released from this marriage. And I say that knowing that even when the Bible says the heart is deceitful, the hardest part for me was just forgiving myself. But once you do, you just can't keep going back. You've got to accept God's grace and live. So she knew, this lady knew what God's word said, but she just felt deep down that God was releasing her despite what God's word said. Now, you know, most of us aren't going to be brave enough to actually say that, but a lot of times we rationalize all sorts of things in our Christian experience. Going, well, surely it'll be okay. God, God understands. And so we end up justifying sin because we feel God's okay with it in this situation. But there's another other side of it. If you think of an old country dirt road, you can go to that extreme of justifying sin. You can also go to the other ditch on the other side of the dirt road here. 
And this is when people cannot believe that God really does forgive them and love them. We know what God's word says. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And I've had person after person over the years, friends in my office, God just can't forgive me for doing that. Well, they're trusting their feelings, not the authority of the word of God. And either one, either justifying sin, well, God, I feel it's going to be okay. Or, you know, God really can't forgive me for that. Or I can't get free. I've had people tell me, like, I just can't get free of this and there's no hope for me. And I'll be like, well, you know, the word of God says no temptation has seized you except what's coming in. And when you're tempted, you're provided a way out. No, no, that, that, that's just not true in my case. It's the same ditch, just on the other side, is trusting our feelings instead of trusting the authority of the Word of God. Why is this a problem? As the question says, what is the problem with this approach? There's two problems with this approach. First, it denies the truth that God does not change. It denies the truth that God does not change. We know from Scripture, if you want the big term for it, it's called the immutability of God. That means that God is unchanging. So what God said in the Scripture still holds today. And guys, just a side note, I mentioned this a few weeks back, but... Be thankful for that. If God changed, you know what a terrifying world that would be? If you woke up this morning going, what if God's promise isn't true today? What if God decided he didn't want to forgive me today? You know, it would be an incredibly uncertain world if, if, God's, if God changed. But God does not change. The scripture is so clear on that. We'll get to that this spring in the attributes of God. But if God does not change, that means he does not change his word. So what God has given us in his written word stands. Now, does God give impressions? Yes. I'm not trying to deny that God can, can speak to us and do things, but when God gives us impressions, feelings, dreams, whatever God chooses to give, it will never, ever, ever, ever contradict the written word of God because God does not change. And so if you feel like God has spoken to you and told you something that's contradictory to the word of God, sorry, you're wrong. I'm wrong in that situation because God does not change. And so, yes, God can move. Yes, God can do whatever God wants to do. And showing us things, revealing things to us. But it will never, ever contradict his word because it do, he does not change. And so if you're thinking, well, no, I just, I really don't feel that God's going to forgive me of this. Well, you've got to put that behind you because the word of God, God doesn't change. And God says, I will. Or if you're one who's trying to justify a sin, going, I think God's okay with it. God doesn't change. His word says it's a sin, then it's a sin. But the other problem with this emotional approach, and I think it's even more scary is if we're letting our feelings decide what we believe, friends, we are ultimately being the ones sitting in judgment on Scripture instead of letting Scripture sit in judgment on us. If, even if it's someone well-meaning sitting in my office saying, I just don't think God can really forgive me of that. What they're doing at that point is say, I just don't believe God can forgive me. They're saying, I am judging the Scripture to be wrong here. And I am believing my feeling that God can't forgive me. And what the Scripture says about God's forgiveness is wrong. When in reality, no matter what we feel, we have to flip that and let the Scripture sit in judgment on us. I may not feel that God can forgive me, but it doesn't matter what I feel. God's Word is true, and if God said it, it's true, it's happening. I have to, in faith, believe it. So just realize what's happening. If we use a feelings-based approach to the Bible, we sit in judgment on Scripture. And realize this emotional approach is pretty similar to other approaches I described. Like the self-centered approach, I become the authority. I should better say my feelings have become the authority here. But secondly, like the pragmatic approach, this, I've taken the scriptures and made it all about me and my feelings and fitting my feelings into what the Word of God says. So that's the emotional approach. Well, the last one I want to mention is a problematic approach scripture I'm calling the mystical approach on this. And this can take two forms. The first form is looking for specific answers to life decisions in this. This is like, okay, God, who am I going to, where do I go to school? Where do I go to school? And I flip through... This first started with A. I'm going to AUM. That must be it. It's a sign from God, you know. It's kind of that approach. And you may have heard this because it gets overused. It's, I'm pretty sure it's not a true story, but I've heard countless pastors use this. 
and trying to describe this approach to the Bible or just in general. It's the story of a guy who said, okay, God, I'm confused about your will for my life. Would you please, please show me your will? I'm just going to turn and find any, anything, and whatever I point to is, my, is your will for my life. Okay, God, I'm claiming this verse, and it ends on Matthew 27.5. Judas departed, and he went and hung himself. No, God, no, no, God, that, that can't be right. I'm just saying, God, you should show me something. Where am I going to go next? God, there's got to be another verse for me. Where's the verse for me? He flips and he turns and he lands. Luke 10, 37. Jesus said, you go and do likewise. No, no, Lord, this isn't right. This isn't right. So he flips around again, turns a few more. So I'll go this way. And he lands. He's like, oh, good. John 13. What you're going to do, do quickly. <laughs> That's really, in a funny way, kind of what the mystical approach to Scripture is. And again, I don't want to minimize that God can speak. I don't want to minimize that we can open our Bible and it falls to something that God has for us. My point is this is dangerous if that's how we approach Scripture day in and day out to figure out the will of God. God has given us the totality of Scripture. We need to be systematically studying so we know His will. The other thing in this is it just, you know, it goes back to what I read from the explicit gospel. The Bible wasn't written to tell you what school to go to or what type of minivan to buy or which city to live in. It was written so that you might know God. And then out of that, the Holy Spirit will guide you to those other decisions, but we don't go looking for these hidden meanings in the Bible of those answers to those particular questions. What's the problem with that particular approach? It really relegates the Bible to a cheap place. Because who does it make the focus again? Me, instead of God. It's all about my decision and my life on this. And so, really, the, the Bible is much bigger than that. But the second form of the mystical approach is looking for hidden codes and meanings. This is, friends, the popular things like the Da Vinci Code. This is saying, I know what this text says, but really buried between the lines here, I think the Bible is trying to tell me I need to look for this sign and do this and do that. You know, that's the hidden messages of the Bible. What's the problem with that? We talked about last week the clarity of Scripture. God has made the Bible understandable, where even a child can understand the message of the Bible, that we can understand the message of the Bible if we're seeking the help of the Holy Spirit. Friends, God didn't hide mysterious code in the Bible for us to find. He has revealed for us, and His kindness to us, what we need to know, and He's not sending us on a mystery puzzle chase to figure out some hidden meaning between the lines. Yes, there are infinite depths of the Bible study. Clarity doesn't mean it's not, there's not confusing things. That we can spend every moment of the rest of our life reading the Bible and still not mind the wonders of it. But the clarity of Scripture means that, that God has shown us what he wants us to know, and we don't need to go looking for things between the lines that are hidden there. So the four dangerous approaches, the self-centered approach, the mystical approach, the emotional approach, the pragmatic approach, they all have one thing in common. The focus is who? Me. Instead of the focus being on where is it supposed to be? God, yeah. And all these approaches, whether it's the self-centered approach, the, what feels good about the Bible, what do you like, the mystical approach, the pragmatic approach, the emotional approach, the focus is all on me instead of on God. Again, let me give you one more quote, and I'll put it on your handout from the same book, The Explicit Gospel, Match Handler. Listen to what he said, and there's some bottom of that page for you. Habakkuk 2.14 promises that, quote, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The supremacy of God's glory is everywhere in the Bible because God's plan is for it to be supreme everywhere in the world. This is the story of the Bible, not you, not me. It is God and God alone, God's name and namesake alone. The point of everything is God's glory so that alone, so that to God alone will be the glory. Again, listen to that line again. The point of everything is God's glory alone, so that to God alone will be the glory. You can chew on that one tonight if you're having trouble going to sleep. And you write me a little summary of what that means, and we'll think more about that one, right? It is God who is deep in riches, God who is deep in wisdom, God who is deep in loving kindness, and God who is deep in glory, not us. This is the message 
of the Bible. And so all these approaches I've just mentioned, the problem is it takes the focus off the riches of God and makes it about me and my story when the Bible is the message of God's story. And so with that said, I really would commend to you, if you have never read the Explicit Gospel on a fresh vision of the big picture, it's a great book. I have two copies up front. I'll give away free to anyone who wants them tonight. So find me when it's over tonight. If you promise to read this in the next month or two, I'll give you a copy free tonight. I've got two up here if you want it because it's a great, great book. So let's turn the page now and let's go to what we should do when we seek to understand the message of the Bible. What we should do. And we're going to start it this week and we're going to carry a little bit over to next week as well on the same question here. But the main idea is simply this tonight. What should we do? We should let the text convey the meaning. If you want a big principle, we'll unpack this tonight and some more next week. But let the text convey the meaning. Well, what is meaning? The meaning of a text is what the author consciously intended to say by his text. Sometimes we call this authorial intent. So the meaning is wrapped up in when Paul wrote the letter to the people in Rome, what was he trying to say? When he wrote to people in Corinth, what was Paul trying to say? Like, what was his message? What was his intent in writing this? And friends, I call this a common sense approach to meaning. This is what we typically want to do. We want to understand what the speaker or writer is is trying to mean. So if you're married and your spouse says to you, what would you like for dinner? We're we're not trying to be like, why'd you ask that? What's the problem? Why don't you like me? You know? No, why? Because we're missing meaning. We're trying to go, okay, they asked a question, so let me give them the answer. The common sense approach to communication is we try to understand what the person has is, is said to us, and the only way we know that is through what they've said. There, it's only by what is, and so for the case of the Bible, it's only by what is written. I can't get into Moses' mind, or David's mind, or Peter's mind, or Paul's mind. I have the words that they consciously wrote through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so I read their words to try to understand what is the plain meaning of what they're trying to communicate to us. And again, it's, I call it the common sense approach. Friends, just let me give you an example of this. Going back to kind of marriage communication, or I guess this applies to any communication in this. None of us can say what someone else means. That's a heart issue. None of us can see each other's heart. You can't say, well, Pastor Grady meant this. or was, you, know, you can only judge my words and my actions. You can't judge your spouse's intent. You always are trying to do this to me. Well, you, that doesn't work. Why? Because we can't judge me. We can't judge intent. Intent is bound up simply in what the author was trying to communicate. We can only judge the words or the actions of the person. And so, when it approaches this, and just as a side note, a lot of marital conflict will be solved if we could quit trying to say you meant this, and instead say, "Hey, I saw this. I heard this. Can you help me understand what you were meaning in that?" That would, by just a side note, would solve a lot of marital issues if we would approach it that way instead of assuming we know what the other person is meaning or intending on that. We're bound here to simply letting the text convey the meaning, letting the words convey the meaning in that. So what is, how do we do this? Well, there's several points of this. And let me just give a little side note here in this. When people speak of the text determining the meaning, there's some really weird theories that go with this. Some people will, go, will take this to be like, well, that means the text has a life of its own. I'm not trying to get into those theories. When I simply say the text conveys the meaning, I'm trying to get us to the place of, since we can't know the mind of the author, we just simply go back and read what the author of the Bible wrote and try to understand the simple meaning of that. So what does that practically look like? Three things here. First thing is we read the verse in context. We read the verse in context. Friends, you can make the Bible say anything by pulling phrases out of it. You saw that with my little silly example earlier tonight of the guy who was, who was searching the will of God and he 
you know, points in there, and it's like Judas hung himself. Oh, God, this isn't it. And so he goes and he lands in Luke 10, and Jesus says, go and do likewise. Well, context will fix that problem in a hurry. If you look at that passage in Luke, go and do likewise, that's not just go do whatever you want to do. That's about the parable of the Good Samaritan. We'll see in a few weeks, parables teach one main idea. What was the parable of the Good Samaritan about? The parable was about to whom is my neighbor, who am I to be a good neighbor? And so go and do likewise is specifically understood by the context to mean we're to go and show mercy to whoever God has brought into our path. So the context clarifies that. Or, you know, the silly one that I used as well when the guy is saying, you know, you know, Judas hung himself, you know, go and do it quickly also. Well, context will fix that one because context there of John 13 is talking about Judas being controlled by Satan. Jesus is willingly laid his life down. No one is taking it from him. And so Jesus looks at Judas and says, what you're going to do, go do quickly. That has nothing to do with work ethic. Or being fast talker. I could say, look, I'm going to apply this verse. Go do it quickly. We're going to get through the study in a hurry, right? No. Context doesn't let me do the verse that way because this verse is specifically about Jesus. The time has come for Jesus to lay his life, willingly lay his life down to redeem people. And so he tells Judas, go do quickly what you need to do. The time has come. And so, friends, as you look at reading the verse in context, if you ever see the words for, but, therefore, for this reason, don't start there. There's a context before that. Go read what it's all about on that. Also realize, though, even if you don't see those words, still read what happened before and still read what happened afterwards. You know that chapters and verses were not part of the original Bible, right? Chapters and verses were added later to help us. If you go back to like the New Testament written in Greek, they didn't even have punctuation in Greek. Even our periods and commas are added later to help us by translators. You look at it, it's just this nonstop. They didn't have space. It was not even space. It was just like nonstop flow of Greek characters over and over and over. And so the context is super important. When we add chapters and verses, it's helpful, but sometimes they can create divisions that were not part of the thought process of the author. So read before, read after. Make sure you understand the flow of thought. That's why when I preach, I'm usually telling you, here's what's happening in the, in, up in the chapters before where we're at today. Here's the flow of thought of the author, because that's so important. If we don't understand the context, we're not going to get what the passage is about, and we'll often misinterpret it. So first thing, read the verse in context. Number two, ask questions of the text. Ask questions of the text. This is seeking to understand why the Holy Spirit inspired the authors to write it like they did. So again, in marriage, if you're having trouble relating to each other, what do you do? You ask questions. Hey, what do you mean by that? Or I'm having trouble understanding this. What were your intentions of this? You, you, you ask questions of each other to understand each other. You do the same thing with the text here. You ask questions. And so just a little kind of personal side note here. When I'm preparing to preach for our sermons on Sundays, the first thing I do before I ever open a commentary is I diagram the text. I'm not trying to sound nerdy with that. I'm not talking about like in those diagrams, all the slash lines. But I take the text and I kind of write it out. And look for phrases, and I kind of put, oh, there's an and, so that must line up with this. And I kind of just block out the text and the flow of thought. And a lot of my main ideas come out, I'm going, oh, wow, he's clear. He's got these four verbs. Look, they all line up. Here's his idea. Because I'm just trying to look at the text. And again, before I ever open a commentary, I then take the text and I write questions next to it. You know, what is this word? Why did you choose this word instead of another word? Or what does this mean? Or, you know, and I spend some time just writing questions that I want to answer. So before I ever get in the commentaries, I've asked questions of the text so that I'm trying to understand it myself. I commend that to you just for your own devotions. If you're reading something, don't just read it and be like, okay, what does my study Bible say it is? Take time to ask questions and seek to understand the message of the Bible. What are some questions you can ask? Well, here's just a few examples. First, who wrote the book? Second, what was happening at the time? That'll give you a lot of insight to what's going on. Does the author tell us his purpose? Well, you know, we talked about that two weeks ago on Sunday mornings. 
If we're going to understand the book of John, we've got to go back to John 20, 31. I've written these things so that you may believe. Okay, well, great. This is about believing. So now that gives me a framework for the whole book to understand individual verses. What is the flow of thought? Who is the subject? What is it about? Friends, I've missed this for years, but when I start asking questions, like go to 1 Peter chapter 2. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Well, who's the subject? You. But you is plural, not singular. And I had often read that as, look at what I am. Oh, look, I'm a priest. I'm part of a holy nation, all this. And the reality is, no, the subject is plural. It's you plural. This is about the church. It's about the body of Christ. We are all together, all of these things. Next question you should ask as well is, what is the verb? What tense is it in? Most of this Sunday morning, John 1, the light shines in the darkness. The light didn't shone past tense in the darkness. It's still shining. What Christ came to do, he is still doing. Then also, and I did put this as a question, but with that is, is this active or is it passive? You know, what is the tense of the verb? We looked at this a few weeks ago in Matthew 7. Ask and it will be given to you. So what is the tense of this? Well, I can't get, create the answer for myself. God has to give me the answer. So is it active or passive? Are there imperatives? That word means commands. Has God given me commands that I need to respond to? And then perhaps if you want to star, circle, underline this question, this would save a lot of problems in understanding the Bible. Is this text descriptive or prescriptive? Descriptive is just describing for us what happened. Prescriptive, the word prescribe. Prescribe means to tell you what to do. And this will quickly solve a lot of problems of Bible interpretation. Is it descriptive or preaching? We're going to get into this a lot more depth in just about two weeks when we look at how to understand narrative in the Bible. Let me give you a quick test here. That's ready? Mark 1.35. And very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus arose and went to a solitary place, and there he prayed. Descriptive of what happened to prescriptive, this is what you must do. Descriptive is telling us what happened. Guys, I can't tell you how many times people have been like, see, if you love Jesus, you're going to get up really early in the morning while it's dark and have your quiet time. See, Jesus did it. You have to do it too. Well, no, you can't do that because that is a descriptive text or it's not a prescriptive. But, okay, here's another one for you. Joshua 1.8. And this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night. Descriptive or prescriptive? Prescriptive. So, Often when it comes to teaching people how to have devotions, we go to this Mark text and we make that the prescriptive command. Well, no, that's descriptive. At least one day in the life of Jesus, he rose early and went to a solitary place and prayed. But the prescriptive command for all of us is do not let this book of law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night. Last thing, just real briefly before we divide into our groups, is to let Scripture interpret Scripture. Friends, bad theology and cults often form out of Someone taking one verse of Scripture and building everything on it, and it's often out of context. If you don't get what something means, if you're looking at Paul's letter of the Romans, like, I just don't get what Paul's saying, go read Galatians. It's the book most similar to Romans. If you don't get there, go read Corinthians. Read Paul's letters. That doesn't make sense. Read other stuff in the New Testament. How is it used elsewhere? And you let Scripture interpret Scripture. And the best, and I have a little quote there for you, the best commentary on Scripture is Scripture. Let the Scripture help you understand the scripture. And with that is understanding the big picture of the whole message of the Bible. Well, bottom line for tonight, much is at stake in how we approach understanding the Bible. If we're to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we must know God as he's revealed himself to us in 
the scriptures. And so to understand what the scriptures say, we have to let the text, not our feelings, not our story of our lives, interpret the meaning out of it. The text conveys the meaning. We don't decide the meaning. God decides the meaning. And the meaning is about him and his story, not about us. Next, we're going to pick back up with the role of understanding cultural context. The Bible is written in a particular culture. We're in a different culture. How do you understand those differences? Also, next week, we're going to talk about the role of the Holy Spirit in understanding the Bible. We're talk about what we must do in understanding the Bible. We cannot leave out the role of the Holy Spirit or the role of prayer or the role of community. Those are all big picture issues. So kind of part two of what we must do will be next week. But for now, we're about to divide up into groups. And look at the back of your, your last sheet. For our last 30 minutes tonight, we want to have some discussion time. And here's the question I want you to have fun with tonight. You ready? Number one, we discuss the dangers of the pragmatic approach to Scripture, where we look to the Scripture, sorry, where we look to the Scripture making it all about us. One way we often do this is the way we moralize and make application of us from the stories that are not about us. I gave the example of David and Goliath. What giant are you going to conquer, right? Use the example of Joseph and his coat. How do you feel when you get new clothes? But what other stories do we tend to moralize, turning the focus from God to self? What other stories have you heard people moralize, taking a story about God and making it about us? Number two, have you ever changed your view on what a text of the Bible means by stating the context more carefully? I mentioned earlier, me with 1 Peter 2, I had this this thing that made me feel so good about who I am in Christ, and I realized this is about me and community, not about me personally. So how does studying the context change a view for you? Number three, what is the overarching message of the whole Bible? I'm not going to give you the answer on that one, but, you know, I want you all to have a few minutes stressing that. If you look at the message of the Bible, that's going to help us understand how to interpret the specifics of it. So what is the message of the whole Bible? Number four, get to as many of these as you can. If not, you can have fun with these with your spouse later or your friends later. We discussed asking questions about the text, particularly whether the passage is descriptive or prescriptive. What are other texts that really are descriptive, but you've heard applied in a prescriptive way to tell others what to do? I mentioned the Mark 135 where Jesus withdrew to a solitary place, and I've heard well-meaning people say, therefore, you have to, if you love Jesus, you have to get up when it's still dark to do your quiet time. What are other texts like that you've, that are descriptive that people have made it prescriptive of what you should do? Number five, we said we should approach Scripture with the understanding that the text conveys the meaning. We can do that but still have trouble understanding a passage. Remember, even Peter said about Paul's writings, there's some things in them that are hard to understand. What steps should you take next when you're having trouble understanding a passage? So when you hit that point, I've read the context, I'm just not getting it. What do you do next? And number six, if you get to this one in half time tonight, can you share with you, the group, a time when God used the meaning of a particular scripture to challenge you, encourage you, or help you at a specific point in your life? So I'll give you more to talk about than you have time to talk about tonight, but hopefully give you some things to think about. Um, CJ has got some guys who are going to be our group leaders tonight. So guys who have agreed to be group leaders, would you stand up for me? So our group leaders for tonight who are going to kind of facilitate discussion. So if we, we've got one, two, so one, two, three, four, five, we've got seven groups. So if the seven of you guys are kind of spread out around the room, and then everyone else, if you'll kind of move around, these guys are going to help facilitate discussion tonight over those seven questions. So y'all enjoy talking about these, and we'll wrap up in about 25 minutes. God bless y'all.